Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about the challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Before we get into the podcast, a word from our sponsors of this episode. Chargebee is a leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS startups, such as Hopkins, Bendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is powerful for startups to navigate complex tax compliance, invoicing, and billing regulations. You can also experiment with different pricing models and localize pricing and checkout experience. Check them out at chargebee.com. E-Residency is a digital gateway to the Estonian startup scene for foreign founders and entrepreneurs. The birthplace of Skype, Wise, and Bolt, Estonia has many advantages for early-state startups for doing business remotely. 90,000 e-residents have already joined. Read more about what they offer on their website at eresident.gov.ee. And now, let's get into today's episode. Charlie is the co-founder and partnership director at TURN which stands for the Entrepreneurship Refugee Network, an ambitious social enterprise and ever-growing community with a mission to enable refugees to thrive through the power of their own ideas. Since 2017, Turn has worked with more than 360 refugee entrepreneurs in the UK, and they're on a mission to launch 2,000 refugee-led businesses by 2025. Charlie has also worked as a trustee for the Refugee Employment Network and an advisor for the Global Refugee Entrepreneurship Network and the Home Office's Refugee Entrepreneurship Pilot. That was a mouthful. They all sound very similar. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm hoping to dig into more of Charlie and what he's been doing with refugees. Welcome, Charlie. So let's start at the very beginning. Charlie, tell me how you came about founding TURN. How did that happen? Yeah, absolutely. That was actually in 2016. And I was just out of university. So I was freshly graduated with not a lot of skills and knowledge to my name, but a passion in the issue of refugee inclusion that had come out of volunteering experiences in my last year at university in COS, which is a Greek island that was very badly affected by the Syrian migration and Calais in the jungle, which I'm sure many of your listeners would have heard about. And if you spent any time in those kind of contexts, you become, and certainly I became very interested in what was happening when people arrived in new communities, because they take these extraordinary risks to try and build new livelihoods in new communities. And when I came back to the UK, what became very apparent was that those livelihoods were a long way away from the aspiration and ambition that was driving those risks. And in fact, refugees represent one of the most marginalized communities here in the UK and in many new societies where they end up building new lives. So that was really where my passion for the subject came from. And then I was lucky enough through my brother to connect with my co-founder at Turn, who had been doing this work in East Africa for about five to seven years, working with refugee entrepreneurs in a camp context with the UNHCR. And he was very interested in taking some of those learnings and seeing if they were relevant to the Western European context, which was at the time very focused on Syrian diaspora. And so that combination of his experience and skills combined with enthusiasm and naivety from my side led to term being started at the end of 2016 and our first pilot running in the start of 2017. Wow. So you had first-hand experience seeing refugees and you saw the sort of the risk that they took to come to a home country. And then you wanted to see how they could have a better life in the home country. And then you met this co-founder who had some experience doing something with entrepreneurs in Uganda. And that was your idea for starting Turn. Did I get that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And I think 
it's very apparent that at the time of 2015, 2016, there was a lot of noise around the refugee crisis and, and a lot of that focus was on immediate need, emergency aid. And in, in amongst that noise, the refugee skill sets, refugee ambition was being buried and refugee livelihoods was being buried. And so coming out of those experiences in Calais and Cos, I was very interested in anything that was trying to look at longer term livelihoods, not just immediate problem solving or immediate emergency relief. And I happened to meet Fred, who's my co-founder, who had that kind of background of knowledge and was asking the same questions. How can we support efforts that go beyond the sort of frontline immediate need and actually try and connect with refugees as they try and rebuild a livelihood and recognizes that they have a huge amount of skills, previous experience, agency that they're looking to try and use but in an entirely different context, I felt that was where we could play a role and be helpful. Can you give me some numbers when it comes to refugees? Like how many come into UK? What happens to them? Any numbers to put this refugee entrepreneurship in context? Yeah, absolutely. It is a global challenge. I'll start globally very quickly because I think it's always important to remember when talking about refugee issues that this is one of the great global challenges of our time. And one of the reasons for that is We've just crossed 80 million refugees globally, including internally displaced people. And that was before the Ukrainian crisis. It translates to 25 million people who've been forced across a border because they're fleeing from conflict, war, persecution. That's the largest number in human history. It translates to about one person being forced to be displaced every two seconds. And the vast majority of those people are in neighboring countries. So 80% are in countries that border on countries like Syria and around Ukraine and in Iran as well. So there's often this focus on the burden that the UK is carrying, the number of refugees in the UK, but it's a tiny fraction of this global challenge. Mm. And that's one of the misperceptions that often gets driven, that we are in danger of being overwhelmed, that we're taking the large share of refugees globally, and that absolutely is not the case. Even within a European context, the UK takes a relatively small number of refugees. The refugee population in the UK is about 140,000. It's actually relatively stable. It's been the same, roughly the same size for the last 10 years. And that includes the resettlement program for Syrian refugees as well. So again, if you have been following the news around the channel crossings, you might be under the impression that this is an extraordinary time for refugee arrivals in the UK. That very much is not the case. And in terms of business potential and entrepreneurship, that's one of the things that gets lost. All the noise is around the size of arrivals, the number of the people displaced and this narrative of the burden that that creates and what gets lost is that actually we know that refugees tend to be almost twice as entrepreneurial as UK entrepreneurs. And that means that we think there are probably about 10,000 refugee entrepreneurs in the UK who've never accessed any form of business support and as a result are not currently trading in the UK. So there's a large number of, of entrepreneurs that are really not getting access to the support they need to be able to contribute new ideas, new businesses to the UK economy. And that's really where Turn is focused. So I want to ask you two questions. One is this idea that refugees are a burden to society, to the UK, to the country that they're trying to get into. Can you talk about, is it a myth? Is it reality? Is the truth somewhere in between? And then the second (laughs) question is more about the support that they do get or don't get. Because that's what I hear when I'm talking to anybody, they'll be like, we have our own problems. Our NHS is already strained. We can't deal with more people. And it's not just the UK saying it. A lot of countries say this when it comes to the refugee problem. So yes, humanitarian crisis. Yes, they need help. Yes, they're much worse off than where we are. But 
if we take them on, then we're not going to be able to serve our own people, let alone the refugees. What do you say to that? Yeah, absolutely. It's a very live debate, particularly at the moment with the current government in the UK. Our response to that is that in the context of that global picture that I just outlined, it really is not a significant contribution from the UK at the moment. We are not overwhelmed with refugee arrivals. We, we at the moment, take in about 25,000 to 30,000 people a year through asylum and another five to 6,000 through resettlement routes. It's a tiny fraction, not just of the global refugee population, but of migrant arrivals to the country every year. And I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that migrants contribute very much net positive to our communities and to our culture and to our economy. Refugees are just a very small fraction of that. So I think one of the starting points in our response is always to reframe that. It's tempting because of the focus certain elements of the media put on channel crossings. It's very visual. It's, it feels like there's a new record being set daily, but in the context of immigration to the UK, refugees remain a very small part of that broader conversation. And our focus would then be, okay, if you accept that, if you put that in context in terms of proportionality, then within that, what we also see is that refugees have a huge amount to bring to economies if you invest in them up front. So yes, we have to be honest. When refugees arrive, we have to take on costs of supporting them. We have to invest in supporting them learning the language and getting them access to accommodation, getting them access to universal credit as they settle into our economy. But we know that if you invest that capital up front in the first two years, long term, they will be extremely positive net contributors to our economy, both through self-employment and employment because of their previous experiences. And I think that's something that gets very much lost when we focus just on all the elements of need that we see come through in the media. That's really helpful. And actually, I want to just continue on that thread before we go to the support part of it. Obviously, this conversation will not be complete if I didn't ask you about the current policy and plan of the UK government to ship yeah. refugees to Rwanda. How do you see that um, that policy? I think it, it really comes out of a mindset that looks to criminalize people who arrive through asylum routes into the UK. The current government has put a lot of weight on the idea that if you increase the penalty for what they would see as illegal arrivals through asylum route, that will act as a deterrent. There's very little evidence that that is the case. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that actually what they, the actions they're taking are illegal. There is no such thing as arriving illegally to claim refugee status, because of course, if you're forced to flee your home, you take yeah. any method necessary to try and rebuild a life in a new country. And I think that's one of the big errors of judgment the current government is making. And actually, if we could just change, if we could change the mindset from wanting to avoid the problem, wanting to deter people from arriving to focusing on if we really put that capital into investing into their livelihoods, so for example, the 150 million pounds they've given to Rwanda to support at the moment, zero arrivals, from the UK, then actually we would see those livelihoods flourishing whilst also contributing to the global challenge of how we welcome refugees into new societies around the world. Because this problem is not going away. Right. As much as we want to, may want to run away from it or hide from it or say that it's not our problem, these are not, this is, we already have enough of our own challenges, that doesn't stop the problem from happening. It just deflects it to other communities and other societies that have to carry more of their share of refugees. So my entire focus and turns entire focus is on saying actually, this is the wrong way to approach this problem. We don't need to look at deterrent. We need to look at how we can positively include to create an atmosphere where they can contribute increasingly effectively with the experiences that they have and the skills that they have. But at the moment, it's not a narrative that is, is getting through. Who are you working with to convince them and to change policy 
The Home Office is very much involved in the conversations that we have around refugee livelihoods. And what's interesting is that there is an understanding and acceptance of this because it's a truth that obviously it makes yeah. sense that when someone's new to the country, if you invest in their first two years after getting status, they are more likely to be able to contribute and build a life and, and they themselves build a thriving livelihood. And there's an acceptance of that to the point where within the resettlement programs, there's a lot more focus on that. So actually, you won't necessarily hear a lot about this, but within resettlement programs, the Home Office is putting quite a lot of money and support into language lessons, employment, employability, self-employment, even to a degree, for those that come through resettlement programs. Through the Syrian resettlement program, even within the Ukrainian program and the Afghan program, there is support available. What's happening, though, is that they are trying to effectively create a distinct line between those that come in resettlement programs and those that come through asylum programs. Mm. That's very concerning to us. So as we increasingly support resettled refugees more effectively, which are a very small number historically of overall refugee populations in the UK, we're criminalizing more and more those that arrive through asylum routes, which is a completely fair and legal way to arrive in the UK. This is one of the big distinctions to be aware of and your listeners to be aware of when we talk about refugee rights in the UK is this increasingly polarized reality for those that are resettled and those that arrive through asylum routes. And that's what we're trying to say is don't treat them as distinct populations, treat them as the same population with the same level of need and the same level of opportunity. And we'll have a much more effective policy environment for refugees in the UK. I did not even think about making that distinction, but now that you say it, I can see the news and see how the news is in terms of the asylums. It's those boat crossings, whereas the Ukrainian or the Afghan and Syrian, it's talked about very differently in the media. Very differently. And actually not just differently in the media, all the way through to the statuses that were being given to these the resettled refugees to the point where Ukrainian and Afghan arrivals aren't even really recognized as refugee visas. They're on different visa types. So it comes all the way from through from the media narrative, literally into the legal status is being approved by the Home Office. And it's really deliberately done to try and drive a wedge between asylum, traditional asylum, the refugee, UN Refugee Convention, and resettled refugees and resettled arrivals, effectively creating good and bad refugees, which is a very pernicious conversation to be having why is yeah. that why is that distinction there because from our perspective and our perception is that the home secretary the former home secretary as i should now say as of the last week two weeks was very much of the opinion that that the refugees that were arriving through asylum routes were effectively illegal arrivals in mm. her eyes she was charged her brief from the prime minister was to stop channel crossings at all costs and as a result, to really double down on this idea of illegal arrivals, as opposed to irregular arrivals, which is how we would call them. So that's really what's been happening, what's been driving that focus on illegal immigration, when actually 98% of people coming across the channel are claiming asylum as refugees. So the vast majority of those crossing the channel are not immigrants at all, but are refugees seeking fair and legal right to asylum in the UK, but that gets buried because it's helpful within the political narrative for them to be seen as illegal. So yeah. It's politics. It is a, yeah. it is, it's, that's the short answer is it's politics yeah. and it's politically expedient for someone like the Home Secretary to push that narrative. And right. is that changing now with a new government or is it too early to say? What are you seeing now? It's a little bit too early to say, but we're not hopeful, to be honest. None of the candidates in the recent Conservative election or leadership election I hesitate to call it election, leadership context, content walked away from the Rwanda plan. So all of them endorsed the Rwanda plan. It's seen as being popular among effectively conservative membership. Again, because of this perception, it's fighting illegal 
immigration. Right. It's a tough stance on migration as opposed to an ineffective approach to refugee inclusion. And that's how it's been framed in the media. As a result, it's still politically effective for conservative leadership to stay close to this plan. Whether it will be effective in a general election, our, our impression is that within the general public, it's a very unpopular policy. So that actually when it comes towards a general election, the plan may be ditched if it's not functioning more effectively by then. But at the moment, we're not very hopeful. Is UK different in this or is it similar to all the other countries? Let's keep it in Europe. Is UK different in the way it's viewing asylum seekers versus these resettlement programs? It is. Prior to this recent Rwanda plan, the UK actually took quite a lot of resettled refugees, partly because it really was the the US and Canada and then UK were leaders of global resettlement, partly because we're an island. So the majority of arrivals in Europe come through as asylum seekers and through asylum groups. So there was a sort of global leader, historical global leadership role played by the UK, at least within the resettlement. And we had relatively, in, in comparison to Europe, relatively progressive policies. It was a mix in comparison to Scandinavian countries, more aggressive, but in comparison to, say, policies in France, at least equal. What's happened with the Rwanda plan is it's a complete step change. It's a massive step change. The only countries in the world that now has as regressive policies as the UK is Australia, which is where we've taken some of the policy ideas from, but even they're not as extreme as flying new arrivals halfway around the world to Rwanda. And the only other country that's ever tried something similar is Israel. They tried actually with a similar scheme with Rwanda. They had a similar setup and they flew, I think, around about a thousand what they were classed as illegal migrants to Rwanda to be resettled. Within five years, there was only five of those families left in Rwanda. So it was entirely ineffective, extremely costly, and little evidence suggests that this plan is going to work. And as a result, within the refugee ecosystem, the UK has become something of a pariah, whereas previously at least had a legacy of being at the forefront of refugee inclusion. And and for us, that's a bit of a tragedy. It's certainly the most backward, in a very short space of time, the last 12, 24 months, it's the most regressive policy environment the UK has had around refugees at least since since the UN Convention on Refugees came into place in the 1950s. Wow. So that's a, yeah, that gives you a, a kind of hopefully some sense of the gravity of what's been happening politically around refugees in the last six months. Incredible. And you said Israel had something similar and there were only five families left. What happened to the others? What happened to that program? They just left Rwanda. So this is the other concept is if you're moving people who are often fleeing for their lives, often fleeing from water or persecution to try and rebuild a livelihood, if you send them back to a regressive government, why would they stay in that environment? These are already people who are who have made the decision to become mobile, to take that risk to try and rebuild a life. So why are they going to stay in a new environment that doesn't give them the conditions they want to try yeah. and build a life? So that's what we saw from the only other case example that we have around what this might look like. The difference with the Australian policy is the Australian policy literally puts them on an island and effectively imprisons them there. And that was one of the other policies considered by the Home Office with the Azores, but they've decided for one that was even more extreme in our eyes than what we were expecting. Yeah. Wow. That's still, I should say at this point, I don't know when this will go out, but at this point, there still has been no flight uh, yeah. No refugees deported, no asylum seekers deported to Rwanda from the UK. There's a second flight in theory scheduled for this month. So we'll see how that goes. But how um, that yeah, goes, yeah. No, no, no refugees have been deported. Yeah. I went to Rwanda, by the way. I was there in the summer 
And I was really impressed with how well that government looks after its people. After the genocide, like the things that they have done to recreate a sense of community and trust, just phenomenal. No one had anything negative to say. And, and I'm not just speaking about people in government, but I just workers, et cetera, that were there. For example, one of the things they did is taken slum dwellings, completely demolished them, but then given people really good housing with electricity, running water, et cetera. I was really impressed with how well Rwanda has been able to rebuild itself after the genocide in 1994. Yeah, and it's a delicate balancing act for the government because on the one hand, they're using Rwanda as a deterrence, right? The whole idea of the policy is that yeah. the idea of Rwanda is enough to stop people traveling. But at the same, on the same hand, they want to be able to say that this is a progressive government that has a growing economy. This is a good place to build a livelihood. Why would anybody be upset about being sent there? So they have a very delicate band line to tread, yeah. which is trying on the one hand to, to put forward that picture of Rwanda, but on the other, fundamentally saying that this is going to be a strong enough deterrent that's going to stop people coming. It's probably an impossible line to tread. And the Rwanda, as you say, Rwanda has changed significantly since the genocide, but... And the government has some positive elements in terms of what's happened in the last decade or so. But it is worth saying that there are still concerns about there is still fundamentally a dictatorship to a large degree. And there is still suppression of independent media and independent political voices. And so there are still concerns which were made to the Home Office and the Home Secretary before the policy came out, that there was recent evidence of torture and political suppression, that it's no, it's still, despite the image it puts forward, not a free country and that's one of the concerns is that you're as a place to send refugees sending them to where there's a recent evidence of political suppression is not a great look as you say there are other reasons and there are other voices that would afford a different image of Rwanda. interesting okay let's come back to the refugees themselves so yeah. when they arrive in the uk let's keep the whole rwanda issue away tell yeah. me a little bit about what support do they currently get and what is it that's lacking in what they get? And I don't know if you want to do it in both the camps, separate asylum seekers versus resettlement. Yeah, absolutely. And it is a clear and distinct difference. So if you're an asylum seeker, when you claim citizenship, so let's say you've come across the channel, you will go to a police station and declare your intent to claim asylum. At that point, you become an asylum seeker and your claim will be processed by the Home Office. And the claim is supposed to take six months. At the moment, it's closer to 18 months with the majority of cases lasting almost two years. And whilst you're an asylum seeker, you haven't got the right to work. Uh, you haven't got the right to self-employment. Um, you're given uh, benefits of £32 a week um, and access to accommodation unless your claim gets rejected. So you have the right to appeal. But if your claim gets rejected and you appeal it, um, which obviously the majority do, because if you haven't got anywhere else to go, then you're going to try and appeal it, then you lose your right to accommodation. So that's when a lot of asylum seekers become homeless. Um, and it's a very difficult process because you're effectively trying to prove to the UK government that you are fleeing war, persecution or violence. So if you're coming from a conflict zone, it's slightly easier. So if you're coming from certain hotspots, yeah. um, Syria historically, Ukraine currently, um, then it's slightly easier it can be slightly easier but if you're coming because you're fleeing from uh political violence because you are lgbt from a from a country that prosecutes um lgbt people uh, or if you're even fleeing from domestic violence you know it's very difficult to prove that to the uk government in any meaningful yeah. way so that case can those cases can drag out for a long time and in that time you know you are increasingly losing 
your agency losing your voice, um, losing your sense of self. And we have refugees that we work with who were in the asylum system for 10 years before they got their status. So an extraordinarily long time to effectively be unable to work um, and really living in poverty because 32 pounds a week is, is well below the poverty line. Um, so that's what it looks like for asylum seekers. On the other hand, if you're a settled refugee, you arrive with status. So you, you, you land, you already have refugee status. And if you get refugee status, that means you're normally given five years um, leave to remain in the UK. Same rights as you or I, exactly the same wow. rights as a British citizen. Uh, and after five years, you can then you know, apply for indefinite leave to remain. And then after 10 years, British citizenship. So you effectively have the same rights as a UK citizen. You can join the UK labour market. You can access benefits. You can start a business, for example. And that's from day one. And on top of that, as we said, a refugee, you tend to be supported by your local council. So you'll tend to have accommodation. You'll tend to have uh, English lessons, English last classes sponsored for up to two years. Uh, often you know, targeted employment support as well, depending on which part of the UK you're in. Um, and quite a structured level of support all the way until you know, two years after you've arrived. So the contrast is, is massive between experiences of asylum seekers of refugees. The last thing I'll say, and sorry, this is obviously a passionate area, so I don't want to go on too long, but the other thing I would say is we, where you see asylum seekers and we said refugees is very different. So asylum seekers tend to be more mobile after they get their status. They tend to come towards urban centres a little bit more. London, for example, um, has a lot of asylum seeker refugees who arrive through asylum. Whereas so settled refugees tend to be sent where there's more accommodation. So mm -hmm. tend to be in other more sort of smaller settlements around the north of England, for example, in particular, some smaller towns as well. And there's a big sponsorship program around it as well, community sponsorship scheme. So it tends to be more rural environments as well. So the spread of, ref of refugees as a population in the end is actually not London centric. It's one of the only migrant populations that's not London centric. So that's one of the reasons why you get sometimes challenging conversations around refugees is because you can often find higher concentration of refugees in towns and rural environments that have smaller populations. And so that can cause tensions because you have accommodation available, perhaps not as active labor market, fewer labor opportunities, and perhaps a more a generally lower income environment that can create community tensions. Yeah, um, I think that was one of the main factors in Brexit, right? A lot of the northern parts of UK were strong on leaving. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's an interesting one because immigration was obviously played a large role in Brexit, but that was really focused on European freedom of movement to a degree. So they often get conflated as the same thing. And particularly the right-wing media is very keen on that, blurring the distinction between refugees and, and migrants using the same, in the same way. Nigel Farage had that famous poster of, at the time, Syrian arrivals queuing along a fence saying that they were coming for the UK, which was incredibly misleading. And, and that really plays into the same idea because what, what was useful at the time of Brexit was that you obviously European migration, which is much, much larger, you know, yeah. you know, four million arrivals as opposed to 150,000 across that period. But they tend to come from countries that are primarily white. Whereas at the time, the Syrian population was obviously primarily Middle Eastern. So most of refugee arrivals were Middle Eastern and it was helpful for certain elements of the Leave campaign to play on this idea that immigration was being dominated by refugee arrivals who were yeah. Middle Eastern from different cultures, from different social backgrounds, as opposed to the majority of migrants in that preceding 10-year period who were European, and that was yeah. the largest. So it can be very politicized very quickly, um, and it very much played a role in that in that debate. Um, but within those northern towns and those longer locations, immigration is, is a much more complicated debate, and refugee arrivals really only play a small part in that. When you started TURN, 
Were you yeah. specifically focused on the asylum seekers or just refugees in general? Yeah, refugees in general. And at the time, the resettlement program, which was 20,000 commitment to Syrians, was just really getting started. So we we didn't really know what that was going to look like. And it was still embryonic conversation. And as we've turned now five years old, we have actually, as we got stronger, because we're still predominantly based in London, 75% of the refugees we work with come through the asylum route. So we have mm. a large overrepresentation of resettled, um, but are also increasingly working outside of, in locations outside of London with resettled refugees as well. So we're starting to see quite clear, clear profiles and distinctions between those two communities, which has been very interesting. Um, and so we remain very much focused on providing access to support for anybody from a refugee background. It doesn't matter if you've got it in the last five years or you've got it 20 years ago. If you've applied for asylum at any point, we will look to give you access to support. When you spoke to me about asylum seekers and the, the resettlement programs and all the support the resettlement program people get, it, it's like night and day. If 75% of your initiatives support asylum seekers, how are you getting the money to do some of the things that you need to do to give them just basic support, let alone then help them with a the business idea? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so we can unfortunately only work with those who've been given status. So I should have clarified that earlier. So we can't work with anybody before they've given status. So we can't work with the science seekers. So that particular challenge is not one that we, we work on. And that would be a whole different podcast to talk yeah. about. It. But once they've been given status, absolutely. We tend to work with people who've been here on average uh, seven years, but have had status for five years. So it's okay. quite a gap between those two periods. So they tend to already have um, built some of the initial foundations of a livelihood in the UK, but we work all the way across the spectrum from you know, literally one month post-status all the way to, as I said, 20 years. Uh, the range is very large. Um, and as a result, wraparound support is a very important part of what we do. So we are very focused on providing business support through our enterprise team, through our delivery team. But to allow that, we have to have referral pathways for a whole range of issues that allow our advisors to stay focused on business. Because if you're a founder, as yeah. you know, and you the audience knows, um, you are your business. You know, you can't separate the two. You, if you are struggling with things in your personal life, you bring them into your business as well. So right. we have to be able to refer people if they start struggling with their accommodation. Many of our entrepreneurs are living in temporary accommodation. If you're struggling with your income and you lose your access to benefits, so suddenly you can't afford food, we have to be able to re refer you to emergency grants. If you are struggling with your status, your status isn't being renewed, so you're being threatened with deportation, we have to be able to refer you to uh, immigration lawyers. And most importantly, perhaps, or the one that affects you know, the vast majority of the entrepreneurs you work with, if you're struggling with your mental health, for whatever reason, um, your trauma is resurfacing, you're struggling with the legacy of the asylum process or a whole range of triggers that could come into your life as a refugee in the UK. We have to be able to refer you to support to help deal, deal with those traumas and with your mental health. So we have a range of referral partners that we are using all the time to allow our central caseworkers and delivery officers to stay focused on business. But that takes a lot of effort. It's taking us a lot of time to get to the point where we can do that effectively. And yeah. it's a work in progress. Makes sense to keep focused on the aspect that you are trying to really help with, but make sure that you have these referral partners to help with other things. Like you said, unless you help with those other things, it'll, it's probably a challenge to help with the business aspect of it. You have to do both. And, and, yeah. And again, it's very tempting to be drawn in when you're working with a founder who's 
suddenly got a legal case or mental health is you to get drawn in as you know somebody who is working yeah. with them and close to them so it's taken even us as founders a long time to get to the point where it's you know recognizing it's better to be boundaried and have that referral process um so that's probably an unusual aspect of our work that most other mainstream business providers don't have to encounter mm, yeah need for holistic support yeah okay know that you have almost 300 odd entrepreneurs um, and 300 small businesses. Tell me a little bit about the kinds of, what are the kinds of businesses these refugee entrepreneurs tend to start? It's incredibly diverse. So that's the other misperception about refugees is that obviously you have crises that dominate the news. So everyone probably thinks that the majority of people we work with are Syrian, Afghan, or Ukrainian. And that is very much not the case. We've just crossed 70 nationalities in the community. Um, we have, as a result, uh, 25 plus industries in the community uh, covering a whole range of business ideas. I, I keep saying that I think I'll probably have seen most business ideas you can think of now, but keep, they keep coming and surprising, which is a nice joy of the job. But the top three industries that we see are 25% are food and beverage ideas. So really focused on street food, catering, new food brands and products. 15% are looking at social enterprises and charity models. So looking at ways often to solve issues that they've encountered themselves in the assignment process, but then a whole range of issues off the back of that. And then 10% is tech and digital. We work with a range of founders who come from technical backgrounds, particularly from Syria and Ukraine, who are looking to either replicate some of that knowledge here or, or build on it. So those are the three industries that we we would always say is stay pretty consistent. But then after that, it becomes a bit of anything and everything. What are the biggest challenges these entrepreneurs face? Yeah, so we would say there's sort of three big challenges that you would face as a refugee founder. And I'm sure many of them will relate to your you know, entrepreneur experience universally, but they can be accentuated. So the three that we see are access to knowledge. So often refugees are very isolated. And as a result, getting access to the basic knowledge of how to start a business in the UK legally, compliantly is can be challenging, let alone building one that's viable. So that's a, a really important starting point is actually how do you as a refugee founder, find the knowledge you need to make sure that your business is set up for success in the UK. The second is access to customers. Again, tied to that isolation point, when you're starting a business in the UK, your network becomes your champion. You know, they're the ones that buy from you, give you feedback, uh, start to promote your business, become your first cheerleaders. And if you haven't got that network, it becomes very hard to build traction. So the sort of first 50 customers cannot be a big barrier for the brands that we work with. And then the last one is access to finance. A lot of the people we work with struggle to get access to personal banking, let alone business banking and then business finance. So we would say now increasingly that last barrier, that access to finance problem is becoming one of the, the most significant problems for this community. Access to finance and access to credit is becoming the biggest, most significant break on growth within our community at the moment. And if, when we started, it was really access to knowledge, but then hopefully as turns got bigger and better at what we do and supported other organizations in doing this kind of work, some of that problem has been solved. And now we're really seeing challenges around access to finance. So are there some initiatives or what are you doing with that? Or how can people who are listening to this podcast potentially help? Well, it, we would love your help, first and foremost, if you are listening to this and you're interested in this topic area. And what we're seeing is it's really across the whole range of business finance. So everything from how we get refugees access to products, business products, finance products, banking, and a whole range of other business banking products. Um, then right through to business loans. We need um, business loans that are specifically targeted and inclusive of refugee founders. So TURN is actually starting a microcredit fund to try and get capital into the businesses quickly and early, mm. up to £1,000. 
So that first like prototype capital, basically, so that they can start to build that traction and, and that product history in the UK. Um, but we need then follow-on finance from more mainstream lenders who can provide larger ticket sizes of traditional debt. You know, so that's really looking at small business markets, but that are more inclusive of, of refugee founders. Um, and then uh, we come all the way over to uh, equity and investment. And um, yeah, we see that as relevant to a very small portion of our community, but for those that are seeking it, uh, the VC space, the private equity space, um, the angel space is very uh, exclusionary for refugee founders at the moment for a whole range of, of reasons. And as a result, to our knowledge, in the last five or six years that Tan's been running, there's only really been two or three investments made into a refugee business in that entire time. Yes. So if you consider the size of the population, it's quite a shocking oversight. And we need to understand more why um, traditional VC and traditional investment isn't finding business opportunities that are coming out of this community. Um, so that's the broad spectrum of where we're seeing support needed. And the good news is, is things are starting to happen slowly in those areas. I mentioned our micro fund. Um, we're also doing increasing amount of work around that investment piece as well. Uh, I think it's going to be a bit of a watch this space. And maybe I'll come back on in 12 months time yeah. and we'll have a more conclusive and, and hopefully hopeful answer for you on that. The government, where are you getting the money to do this? Fantastic work. Uh, I'm really inspired um, hearing you talk, Charlie. Thank, thank you. That's very kind. And um, and it's a pretty, honestly, we've we've loved it. I mean, being a founder in and of itself is a privilege and being a founder working in social impact businesses is also been a great challenge. And then we get the pleasure of working with you know, 300 entrepreneurs, which is in and of itself just a, an amazing privilege. Um, in terms of how we're funded, um, about two thirds, just less than two thirds comes from private partnerships. So we have a range of corporate partners who fund our core programs. So everything from Ben & Jerry's, obviously a big American US brand, very famous for their social activism. They've done a whole range of amazing stuff with us. They're one of our longest, oldest partners. They launched an ice cream flavor in support of refugee entrepreneurship, um, which is, um, yeah, really, which is, which is fantastic. And the profits of that actually went to launch the micro fund I mentioned earlier. And they're amazing. Oh. If you want to eat guilt-free ice cream, uh, I will always shamelessly plug Ben & Jerry's, all the way through to uh, Atomico, which is a major um, VC here in London that has been involved in our incubator, through to a brand like S&P Global, who's been involved in our more one-on-one -on -one rolling technical support. Um, we've been very lucky to be able to attract a range of corporate partners to come board and support our work. And then about a third of our funding comes from public finances. Um, we have been involved in some European projects, sadly coming towards an end of those. Um, and then the Home Office has started to become more involved through the resettlement programs um, in refugee livelihoods as well. Um, and then the last sort of 10% or so, 5% comes from uh, donors, individual um, funds and foundations supporting us. Um, so it's quite a, a mixed model. Um, yeah. But um, it really relies heavily on those those two sort of public and private elements. I'm sure there are lots of different people that uh, are inspired by what you do, Charlie, and would want to get involved. So how can people get involved if they want to? Well, the easiest way and the way that hopefully no one can refuse is, is buying from refugee-led businesses. Um, I talked about the access to customers problem um, and building up uh, loyal customers who build cash into their businesses is, in our view, one of the most dignified and important ways of validating the entrepreneurs that come through our community. And we have a marketplace called Anchor, um, which is you can find at anchorcollective.com. Um, and uh, we have now over 130 products on there, 15 reputed brands on there. Um, would highly recommend everyone checks it out. If you just want to, if you have nothing else, 
you have no other time, just buy from reputable businesses and look and, and follow that marketplace for new brands coming through. If you have a bit more time and you want to get involved in this issue, like you yourself are doing, Anita, then please come and join our supporter community, um, which uh, has a whole range of roles. You know, go from very limited amount of time, you know, one or two hours every three months, just to have an advisor session with our entrepreneurs, all the way through to much more intensive mentoring roles. And you can find out how to join that workshop through our website, um, weareturn.org. Um, and then, you know, if you have connected and you have come from a professional industry, particularly known for natural services, and you think that there are ways that your company could become involved or that your product and your core service is useful to the audience that we've been speaking about, then please do reach out and connect with me directly on, on LinkedIn or indeed through our website as well. We have quite a clear partnership page that can do that. So those are really the three areas that we're always looking for new opportunities to help level the playing field for refugee founders in the UK. I'll put all those links that you've mentioned in the podcast page so that people have access to it. In terms of the marketplace, Charlie, yeah. is there a way that the products that are in the marketplace show up in Etsy? When I look at buying anything that's unique and different, you know, I usually go to Etsy. So why your own marketplace? It's a great question. And the, uh, it was one that we spent a lot of time on. The, the answer for us actually was because of the markup that Etsy take. on. So actually the Etsy takes a relatively large commission out of the sales on, on the platform, which if the focus for us is on driving diversified revenue actually erodes the margin for a lot of the businesses um, coming through from our community. So the payoff in terms of access to customers versus that reduction in profit margin was one that we decided to try and take on as a challenge ourselves. We also wanted to really focus on the visibility of refugee founders. Mm -hmm. So we weren't clear on Etsy how we could really do that effectively. Um, that was why we felt like actually there's a value, even if no one buys from the marketplace, which luckily they do, but even if no one buys from it, there's a value in having a space just for refugee founders that people can engage with. Having said all of that, I will just say that we are just about to start a pilot program with eBay. So not Excellent. on eBay. So to get some of our founders trading on eBay. So we're going to see how that those two, the very different markets. Yeah. We'll see how those, that those two different approaches go and hopefully they can support each other in that process. But that does now mean, unfortunately, because we're working with eBay that we will not be able to work with that scene in the immediate, in the immediate term. But um, yes, it, it's effectively the same question, which is yeah. what's the most effective way that, to allow people to buy from refugee businesses online. Okay, excellent. Well, I look forward to hearing how that program rolls out and the other initiatives that you're working on as well. Thank you so much, Charlie, for being on this podcast with me. It's been, I learned so much from talking to you and I really look forward to working with you and supporting Turn in whatever way I can. Thank you. Thank you, Nita. Thank you very much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, keep building.